Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch and I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute. Today's episode is brought to you by our main partners, Kaiser. And my very special guest today is Dan Lawrence, a human performance coach and the head of performance at Matchroom Boxing. Dan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, John. Great to be here and excited to have a chat today. Now, it's very exciting for me too, and it's just fantastic to have you on the show. And can you please talk a little bit about yourself and your work? Absolutely. As you alluded to, one of the roles is head of performance at Matchroom Boxing. I'm blessed to work with some of the best boxers on the planet. And uh, I also have a consultancy company where I look after footballers of of all levels, uh, Premier League down to League One. And uh, I run a business mastermind and coaching business as well uh, called Elite which looks after practitioners who are looking to improve their coaching skill set and develop their business. I have a couple of other things going on as well, but uh, I won't bore your listeners with that, but that's the crux of it. Well, it sounds like you're a busy man and you must have had plenty of different experiences. I'm wondering, what has been your biggest lesson so far then? Yeah, biggest lesson in regards to sport and life, John, to be brutally honest, is how you respond to setbacks. I think fundamentally is it's not a linear path and this again is in in relation to sport and life that there's going to be many a hump in the road and my lesson is to show resilience and not expect it to all be you know sunshine every single day that you have to come back from these setbacks and how you come back from these setbacks ultimately defines the success or failure of the journey and Dan your work has taken you into the world of sport and elite performance but also into the business world as well And I'm wondering, what are some of the fundamental principles in your work across both domains? There's lots of synergy between the two, John. And for people in the business space, the corporate space, they might not see the similarities between what they do on a day-to-day basis and what elite-level professional athletes do. But I certainly do see massive uh, synergy and massive similarities between the two, one of which is being outcome-led. So if you're an elite-level athlete, let's say one of my boxers, for example, we might have 12 weeks to prepare for a world title fight. Well, we set that outcome, we have the dates, we reverse engineer the process, and we put the steps in place to reach said outcome, which is getting their arm raised and ultimately winning the fight. And in business, it is no different. You might have a set outcome of something that you have to get done by a specific point. And again, you put the strategy in place to reach that outcome. So that for me is one key area that uh, crosses both paths and domains. Another is working as part of a team. You know, as an elite level athlete, they don't do it all by themselves even if they are a boxer, for example, and don't have 10 other teammates backing them up if they have a bad day at the office, or a Formula One driver, for example. There's massive teams behind the scenes that work cohesively together to drive the performance forwards and reach the outcomes that you're looking for. And in the business space, it is no different. You might have a CEO or founder of a business, but you've got lots of other individuals that have that same sole goal to move the high-performance machine to reach that outcome. So working as part of a team and setting a specific outcome, John, are very, very important. The hiring of experts to reach your goal as well is, again, fundamental. I'll stick with boxing uh, because it seems to be the theme and it's the one I'm probably most well-versed in, is that we have the boxer, which makes sense. We have the head boxing coach. Uh, We then have the head of performance. uh, So that would be myself and my role. We then have a nutritionist, performance nutritionist. We then have maybe a soft tissue therapist or one of the other, physio, chiro, whatever else it may be, or head of medical um, and then you know, some might have a psychologist as well, plus many other things. So there's lots of individuals that play a role and add percentages to the overall picture with one sole goal to drive it forward. So again, there's, I think, huge synergy between the two domains of elite level sport and in the corporate or business setting. 
And that makes a lot of sense. And I'm guessing as well that the highest performers, whether that be in business or in sports, recognize that they cannot go it alone. I think that's fundamental, exactly that. And, you know, I worked with, and I, I will say this now because he has retired and he became world champion at the fourth attempt, George Groves. Um, George is a great friend of mine and uh, and just a great guy who had such an up and down story. You know, it was a real roller coaster. There was many a low point. And I think George will admit, and this is why I'll say this on this podcast, John, is he'll admit that when he left Adam Booth and went with Paddy Fitzpatrick ahead of the two world title fights with Carl Froch, uh, the first one, never forget it, November 23rd, 2013 in Manchester. No one gave us a hope in hell. Carl Froch was the champion, and rightly so, you know, formidable champion. And George was this young up-and-comer who spoke well, had some good wins, but never been on that level. George went in there and boxed an absolute masterclass, put Carl Froch down on his backside in the first round, and... Uh, it was a round-for-round round masterclass from George, and then Howard Foster ultimately stepped in and stopped the fight when Froch landed his first few barrage of punches in the ninth or tenth round. I, I can't recall, but um, but anyway, that then game the rematch, and <laughs> well, we know what happened there. It was, I'll explain. George got knocked out in front of eighty thousand people at Wembley, so he had to come back from a lot of adversity. But we won't go into that now. But what we will go into is the specifics of the question. As George probably thought that he could do it alone to a degree. Yes, he had a team. He had myself. We had a conditioning coach. We had. Uh, obviously, his head coach at the time. Then it went to Paddy Fitzpatrick, but he believed that like he was steering that ship at the time. You know, we can again talk about that now. Whereas I don't believe that's the right way of doing things. I think you need the head coach, the boxing coach, in that instance to really steer the ship and make those right decisions, and then have the team together collaboratively and synergistically uh, to make the best decisions and be experts in their own specific areas. So I think that's really, really important. Is uh, you, you have to have a cohesive team working together with one sole goal. Absolutely. And Dan, we spoke before about the tendency for people to overcomplicate human performance. It's something that you yourself have said. What do you mean by that? Could you perhaps elaborate a little bit? I can, John. And we're living in a world now, a digital world, where social media is ever present. And social media can be both a blessing and a curse. There's lots of positives that it gives normal people access to you know, world-class practitioners and whatever else they, they want to consume. But the other side of that coin is that it gives others a voice. And for the, the normal person, the Joe blogs off the street, they might look at these individuals and see them as the, the person they want to listen to because they may have followers or whatever else. And actually, is their message and what they're saying optimal for that individual? That might be questionable. So um, I think with the world of social media, that's made things a little bit more complicated in terms of optimization of human performance because not everything out there is correct in my opinion and obviously it's not a one-size-fits-all approach we do know that but because of that John I take a step back and this would be very simplistic for your listeners but we have four fundamental pillars of performance at Perform365 one of my businesses and they are training pillar number one nutrition number two recovery pillar number three and our fourth pillar is mindset which is the glue that holds the other three pillars together and of course we dovetail down and go you know go into different branches and arms of each of those pillars and quite in depth of course but I think for someone who is looking to embark on a, a performance journey in whatever capacity that is with their own goals whether it be aesthetic or you know more uh, more performance related just look at those four pillars nail those pillars and you will get closer to your goals um, to give more context as well I suppose to the question John is training might look at you might look at two facets of training you might look at your gym based work um, so let's say you're lifting, then you may look at your energy system development work. Nutrition, or something we say is fuel for the work required. 
Dr. James Morahan, you know, incredible performance nutritionist at uh, Liverpool John Moores University, has a research paper called, I think it's titled Fuel for the Work Required. And um, it's basically having the correct fuel for the outputs that you're looking for to ensure that you're fueled for your sessions and, uh, and reaching the goals that you're looking to do. So training and nutrition need to be merged together hand in glove. You then have recovery. We can look at this again in a simplistic way. Is stressor, recovery, adaptation. Stressor is the training stress. Recovery is recovery optimization. And adaptation is, let's just say, improvements. Well, unless you're getting that middle piece recovery, you're not going to elicit the adaptation that you're looking for and you're not going to make the improvements you're, you're looking to achieve. Something we say is you can only train as hard as to what you can recover from. And uh, that's why you know recovery is, is such a fundamental pillar of ours at Perform365. And the, the fourth one, which arguably is the most important, is mindset. Because unless you have consistency to what you're doing, everyone can do that awesome session, You know that one session, they beat themselves up and then they're hobbling around for days. Well, that's a kind of lack of knowledge around dose response. You probably overcook things a little bit. Why not just consistently dose yourself the correct way and build those consistent habits with high frequency of training over time to reach your goals? And that comes from having a, a good outlook on things and a, a solid mindset. And you eloquently described those pillars there. And I have a feeling that must go down quite well with people in elite sport as well. When you couch things in such terms, that really does resonate with them. I like framing things, John, and I think your question was around the overcomplication of human performance. So having those pillars is, a, I feel, a good way to start. And many may listen to this and think, oh, that's so basic. Well, it is on the surface, but of course you go a lot deeper into it and you peel the onion back further in terms of needs analysis, specificity, and whatever the athlete's goals are that present themselves in front of you. But I think having those four pillars, you're not going to go far wrong. No, very well said. And talking specifically about elite sport... In terms of your work and your role, what is the difference or are there any differences between working with, say, a boxer or a footballer? What are some of the differences that emerge in your work? We look at the four coactive model of player preparation, and that is tactical preparation, technical preparation, psychological preparation and physical preparation. So they remain true for both sports and both domains. There's not huge differences. And again, people may listen to this and think, how can there not be huge differences? But fundamentally, goes back to there's an outcome. What is the outcome? What is presenting itself in front of you at that moment in time in terms of the sport, in terms of the athlete? What is their injury history? What are their training loads? So this is key. Is monitoring and managing training loads is fundamental so the athlete doesn't break down and that we, you know, again, keep them, let's say a footballer, for example, keep them on the pitch and being readily available to play. In boxing as well, it's uh, managing training loads is, I'm not going to say more important, but it's probably something that hasn't been managed as well as something like football um, until you know recent years because they're for me in a chronic state of fatigue they're constantly foot on the gas a million miles an hour um, it's very hard I think a lot of wins to be honest John with the boxers are to pull back before we can then move forwards and being a bigger picture thinker so we look at things on a macro not a micro level kind of going back to what I said there about not it's not about that one awesome workout that you crush it's about gradually, consistently building wins over time. Um, and the same thing applies with the boxers. If we can pull back a little bit to optimize recovery and fill that bucket up, then the overall picture is uh, is going to be improved. So I think, yeah, look, there's not huge differences because we, again, analyze existing routine, identify what the goal is, manage their training loads, look at the four coactive model of player prep. And uh, of course, the pendulum shifts with footballers in the off season that we prioritize certain qualities that they may not get en enough time to do in season as obviously playing is the main thing. And I think with both sports and any sport in general, 
keep the goal the goal. The athlete playing the sport is the number one goal. What we do as practitioners in strength conditioning and whatever else is to complement what they do for their sport and to give them the tools to better improve athletic qualities to then become better at their sport. If you're getting your mismanagement of training loads, you know, if you're getting that wrong, then they're not going to be able to play their sport. They're going to be sore, for example. Well, that's because you've overcooked them in the gym. So it's giving them, we call it microdosing. You give them a little bit of a stimulus to allow them to adapt and then they can play their sport and you keep just building that robustness and build those qualities over time. Um, so yeah, not huge differences, but yeah, just got to look at what presents itself in front of you at that time. And then of course, prepare properly for it. Back to the conversation in a moment, but first a word about our main partners, Kaiser. For over 40 years, Kaiser has been at the cutting edge of the fitness industry. Kaiser Strength products utilize pneumatic technology and dynamic variable resistance, which allows the user to build strength at any speed. And it offers an unrivaled opportunity to work towards any training goal. Kaiser's cardio products are smooth, silent, compact, and designed with the user in mind. Built with Bluetooth integrated technology, the simplistic yet striking design offers unmatched user longevity. Simply put, Kaiser equipment raises the bar in elevating human performance for everyone. If you'd like to hear more, then please get in touch with the leaders team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, visit kaiser.com to find out more. And now, back to the conversation. So you've spoken to me about working smarter. What does that entail in a sporting context? Working smarter is fundamental, and going back to combat sports and boxing especially, You'll never have to ask your guys or girls to work any harder. But oftentimes we need to be a bigger picture thinker and look at things on a macro level to say, if I can take that hard work, but actually be more strategic in terms of dose response, then that for me is smart, a smarter way to reach a specific outcome. So not every day is a high day. It can't be. Foot can't be on the gas every single day because otherwise they will ultimately break down. We, of course, program deload weeks where we pull back before we move forwards. But um, if we didn't strategically plan each and every training day and look at it from almost like a traffic light system, we can look at red being a high day. That's a very tough, high-intensity day. Lots of volume accumulated. Then you have kind of amber, which is a bit of a moderate day. And then green is a lower day. So then going back to the training nutrition, that can be merged together hand in glove. In combat sports, you, you don't fight unless you make weight, so that's important. But also from a management of training loads, we have to be smart with those training loads. And as I say, not every day can be a red or a hard day. So we should strategically plan those. So to give the listeners a bit more context, when camp intensifies after the preparatory phase, my boxes might go into three days a week sparring. So that might look like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay, so we know that keep the main thing the main thing, keep the goal the goal. The sparring is the main thing. So we want them as fueled as possible for those sessions and they want want them as fresh as possible for those sessions. Because looking at a psychological point of view of if they have a bad spar, they could then anchor that thought and belief and take that into the next day, the next week, and then before you know it, they're not happy with how they're performing and they take that into fight night and maybe don't perform in the way that we want. So we have to have them fresh for those sessions. So knowing that, we might then look at Monday, Wednesday, Friday as actually being high days and saying sparring being in the morning and then later in the day we might go with, let's just say their strength and conditioning sessions or let's say some of their energy system work that might be hard. Then we look at Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday 
and say, okay, well, those days, they might be lower days. And we can pull back a little bit, knowing that they've got sparring the following day and had it the previous day. And then we can also look at that from a weight making point of view to say, actually, on those days, we might go lower with the fueling. We might go moderate on the carbohydrate intake as opposed to higher carbohydrate intake to replenish muscle and liver glycogen on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday to fuel those sparring sessions. So we've got to be smart and we've got to look at this from a from a global point of view, from a, a macro level with the outcome being the main focus to say it's not just about foot on the gas all the time, but all it is about is fight night when that first bell rings, that we have prepared that athlete the right way. So yeah, for me, smart work over hard work is, is fundamental. And how we do that, John, is we look at subjective monitoring, we look at objective monitoring. Some of the subjective markers we look at are, are mood, soreness, energy levels. Uh, we ask the athlete that, we ask them to fill that in on I use something called output sports, big plug to the guys in Dublin, and um, they'll just monitor one to five in terms of how they're feeling. So that's subjective to them. But then we also bring some objectivity into our work. So we look at whoop or aura, um, and we look at HRV, heart rate variability, and uh, and that can, you know, if, if they're very low on there, then that will lead to further conversations of, okay, did you sleep well? How are you fatigued? The great thing about the Aura and Whoop as well, we can actually look at readiness to train based on some of their markers that they look at to give a readiness score. Uh, we can then look at neuromuscular readiness as well. So we do jump testing and uh, we just do three jumps at the start of every session to assess neuromuscular fatigue. And we take all of that information and we don't just say, right, take this as gospel that's now means we're going to rip up the rule book and send you home it will just lead to more conversations with that athlete okay so look your sleep and readiness is, is really poor what, what happened last night like what time did you get to bed because here it's saying that you know you only had five hours sleep and we've got a really tough session planned so am i going to expose you to that amount of volume am i trying to elicit those neuromuscular outputs and and expose you to high stress well probably not the smartest thing to do so we need what we have to do, John, and this is something that, that I do with all of my athletes, we have to have an open line of communication. This is not a dictatorship from practitioner to athlete. It has to be collaborative because otherwise if it's not, and this has to be said early on in terms of the educational piece for the athlete, if it's not collaborative, then they're always just going to say, especially combat athletes, oh, I'm good. I'm good to go. Show no weakness. And you know that's not always the, uh, the answer that we're looking for. So smart work over hard work. Dan, what are some of the typical bumps in the road that elite athletes hit? Are there common issues or is there a range? Injuries is probably the one on the tip of the tongue. You know, it does happen where they be soft tissue, whether there's, you know, they come from something else that every athlete will experience it. And something we say as an athlete's best ability is their availability. Injured athletes aren't really, really good to anyone. So um, fundamentally, we are trying to best mitigate the potential risk of injuries. Obviously, injuries happen. We understand that. But um, by following their performance program, we're trying to reduce the likelihood of that occurring. So um, that's certainly a bump in the road. And with an injury comes lots of negatives. And we're not just talking physical. You know, We're talking the mental aspects of it now and the psychological aspects is that how do we then deal with that? If it's a longer layoff, there has to be a framework in place of something we've used before is if an athlete's out for nine weeks, let's say, which is a considerable amount of time and all they want to do is, is get back on that pitch is not focus on the outcome at that moment in time. As much as I'm very outcome-led, then we look at performance and process-based goals. If I'm talking about nine weeks, 10 weeks away, that's very demoralizing for that athlete at that moment in time. So something we came up with was a concept uh, we just every morning sent it is hashtag WTD is uh, win the day. So let's just focus on winning the day. And what does that look like? And that might look as simple as 
daily non-negotiables. Uh, it might look at uh, doing their mobility work in the morning and there's some breath work. It might look at them getting eight hours sleep a night, like giving them some clarity on exactly what winning the day looks like and then just stack those wins. There's, I'm sure you're familiar with David Brailsfield, the aggregation of marginal gains, the 1% rule of just, yes, the goal is over there at this moment in time. I think they were the whipping boys in, in sport at the time and he literally turned them around and they became the best team and I might be getting that slightly wrong, cycling is not my domain, but uh, the, the principles of what he put together was absolutely brilliant and uh, it wasn't just focused on the outcome. He had that outcome, but it was focused on the 1% rule and the aggregation of marginal gains each and every day. And it reminds me of like the, the building of the wall analogy. You don't focus on building the wall, you focus on building each brick by brick and then at the end of it, you've built the wall. So um, so that's something that we did is the psych psychology behind it of how do we deal with that injury and then how do we get them back, but get them through this moment and this storm, because it is just a storm, it will pass and we will get them back right. But so uh, I think the language you use and the people you have around you at that moment in time, and also setting some clear goals, you might say, okay, week one and two, again, of course, injury dependent, week one and two might just be with the head of medical, getting some soft tissue work, um, you know, reducing the size of the edema or whatever it is. Then it might be, okay, week three, the goal is to get you back in the gym and get some loading through you. Maybe that looks like isometric work, maybe we use some blood flow restriction, uh, just to get some, some load through you. Week four will look like this, week five, is us back doing straight line running, linear running at 70%, for example. So you just have a bit of a roadmap so they can see it and say, okay, I'm ticking this off as I go. The outcome will be met, but I'm focused on each day or each week as it comes. So I think that's important is um, bumps in the road injuries are obviously something we have to deal with and how we deal with that is, is very uh, specific and we have to do it in the, in the right way. Another thing as well, John, is I'm thinking of my boxes here is fight dates not being made or being messed around with fight days. People don't see it from the external point of view of, and I'm talking elite level fighters, fighters on the cusp of world titles who are just waiting for fights for months and they just can't get fights. Um, and that's that's really hard. If you think of that as a, a performance team, of how do I keep that athlete on track? How do I keep them in the gym? How do I manage their weight so they don't balloon in weight so when they get a fight the first four weeks is fat camp or trying to get the weight off or we can't focus on any other qualities so that's really important as well is see how do we keep them on track and keep their head right without a fight date and then also the fact that they might the fight might just get you know uh, cancelled for whatever reason anyway it, that's really hard so i think that they would be the main ones the injuries being the main one and the second one again very specific to boxing is that Sometimes you don't know when you're fighting, so you just have to stay ready. Thankfully, with my guys, they are elite. They're not just going to get a fight in two weeks' time. But um, but yeah, they just have to have to stay ready, and that's that's hard. And there's just a couple of areas I want to cover today, if, if we may. And the next one is the importance of touch points with coaches and other team members. And how do you optimize those touch points for the benefit of the athletes? Yeah, great question, John. And Dr. Fergus Connolly talks about this, of having synergy between different departments with one sole goal, and that is the athlete. We've spoken before about working as part of a cohesive team with one sole goal of the athlete winning or reaching the outcomes that you're collectively looking for. And I think that communication is fundamental. Having no ego and making sure that it is an athlete-centered model is, is of the utmost importance. Um, having communication via WhatsApp groups, whether you know that would be myself and our head of medical in a WhatsApp group to feedback what they found, you know, in their treatment with the athlete and what I did in you know our say gym-based session or pitch-based sessions. Um, obviously, being 
communicative in, in terms of red flags as well. Any red flags they need to be passed on and just ensuring that we're all on the same page. That's, uh, that's fundamental. So touch points in communication is, is of the utmost importance in that regard. And final question, how do you see the role of the SNC evolving across various sports over the next couple of years? What's coming down the road and what signs are there now? Great question, John. I think over the past 18 to 24 months, we've been focusing a lot around objectivity and data collection, which I think is a good thing. But I do believe at times it can be quite overwhelming. And fundamentally, why do we obtain objective data? We obtain objective data to allow us as practitioners to make better informed decisions to move the needle and reach the outcomes we're looking for with the athlete. So I think sometimes there, there's a lot, there's probably too many data collection points. So I think as practitioners, we probably need to identify what are the ones that we need that are going to allow us to better serve our athletes and, uh, and then go with those. So um, I think there is still going to be more data out there for sure. I think it's such a booming industry. I, I listened to a podcast the other day with Will Ahmed, the uh, founder of Whoop, who's on the Stephen Bartlett podcast. Great episode if you haven't listened. And I think he said they're valued at like $3.2 billion, Whoop. And uh, that came from an idea in his, uh, I think it was in Harvard in one of his uh, student dorms and he just went with it. He had many a setback along the way, but now here, here he is developing a global business that works with MBA, you know, PGA, works across multitude, multiple sports and you know some of my athletes use it as well. And um, I think there's, as practitioners, probably my way of looking at it would be, we can't stop the new data being out there. In fact, we can look at it in a way of, that's actually really positive. But we also probably need to look at it in the, with a lens of saying, I'm going to disregard that. I don't need that right now. I don't need 20 data collection points. I can actually work with three to five and I can then get as, enough information that's going to allow me to inform my decisions. So, um, and that's just my take on it. Some might need 20 data collection points depending on the sport they're working with, which is absolutely fine. So I think, yeah, the way things are going is there's going to be lots more data. And um, I just think as practitioners, we need to need to be careful with that. It's ultimately how you use that data, isn't it? Fundamental, exactly that. To allow us to make better informed decisions, great, but not overwhelm us and then just get data for data's sake. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Dan Lawrence, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me, John. Great to talk.